Hey, Rockbridge, I hope everybody is doing great as we uh, come into just an incredible uh, time in the history of our church as as we get into a season where we're celebrating just what God's done in our church, what he wants to do through our church. And this coming weekend, next weekend, we have one of the biggest events that we do for our uh, our students. We call it Disciple Now. It were things like this in my story that really were uh, trajectory-changing, life-altering experiences with me and my faith journey. And so we offer things like that periodically throughout the year for our next generations. This is our big Super Bowl event for student ministry. So I want to invite you to do a couple of things church-wide. Pray for Disciple Now. If you're a parent or an authority over a 6th through a 12th grader, just exert your spiritual leadership, which is our responsibility as moms and dads and parents and guardians to, uh, to encourage, to get your child to be able to participate in this. You'll even have an opportunity if you want to serve and support uh, this, this whole movement because it's a massive undertaking to bring this many teenagers together uh, and get them together to worship and focus on God. So that's just incredible. That's exciting. But now we're going to jump into Ripple Effect. We're like, I don't even remember what part we're on. We're like on part 22 or something like that, right? We've been going through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue in chapter 14 today with the back half of this where Paul is kind of getting underneath the purpose of what we're actually doing right now in six locations, which is Christian Assembly or Christian worship. It is incredibly powerful what Paul's going to be talking to us today because it really impacts our lives. I mean, there's a tendency in our culture, right, to think hey, what, what church is irrelevant, church doesn't matter, or I got to go to church to do my Christian duty. And, and I'm just praying that God, through Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a new vision for what we do weekly together and how it impacts actually your very soul your very soul. So to kind of get us going with this, let's talk about something that you and I have the capacity to do. We have the capacity to be captivated by things, right? That, you know, we say, well, that grabbed my attention, that caught my eye, that captivated me, right? It could be your social media feed, It could be your text notification, right? There's so many things competing for to grab our attention, but we have the capacity to be captivated. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's an example of of what we call what rubbernecking. Ever slowed down like, man, what is going on? What happened? And you get there and it's like, well, something happened, but it's like 20 yards off the road, but everybody's slowing down to do this, right? Why? Because we're captivated by it in a dehabilitating way way, right? How about this one? Super Bowl. We just finished it. 113 million people tuned in to watch the Super Bowl. Why? Because as a culture, this captivates us, or the halftime show captivates us. How about this one? I wasn't alive here, but 650 million people, 650 million people watched the moon landing, and we were captivated right, by space travel, captivated by football, captivated by accidents on the side of the road, captivated by our smartphones, captivated by things. Now, let's admit something. This is a principle, so it can work for you or it can work against you. What captivates us changes us, at least temporarily. 
It changes our focus, our energy, our attention. It changes, it sometimes what captivates us can change our direction. Some of you could explain why you married who you married because they caught your attention or they caught your eye, right? Some of us could explain why we failed a class in college or in high school because we were captivated by something other than the class we were taking. So it can work for us. And it can work against us. But it is a life principle that whatever is captivating you, it could captivate you in a way that it preoccupies you and produces stress and anxiety in you. It can captivate you in a way that fuels you, motivates you, and drives you. So captivation is a human principle. Your heart is wired for it. Something or someone is always going to capture you or compete for the captivation that you're capable of. And so really, in a sense, I could summarize the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and what it boils down to is this, God believes and God has the capacity to captivate us, and this right here should capture us. This right here should stop us in our tracks. This right here should give us a sense of being loved. This right here should give us a sense of our sinfulness and motivate us toward holiness. Because what captivates us changes us. This right here is the captivating capacity of God in Christ. We call this image the crucifixion, which is part of the gospel. It includes the resurrection. But Christ, the God-man who died for me instead of me, should captivate me. So one thing we should ask ourselves this weekend is, is this still captivating me or has it captivated me? Has, it, has he captivated me? Because we, we need to understand something. God's plan all along is for a people to be so captivated by, with him that, they are, that we're changed, that we're transformed. We become what we behold. Our attention determines our direction. Our direction determines our destiny. So if Jesus has our attention, Jesus gets our direction, and Jesus controls our destiny, right? Let's review. What was our word last week? Amen, right? What was our word last week? Amen. So Jesus has this capacity. Now now think of it in a couple ways. Jesus captivates us initially. That can come in the form of conviction, guilt, and shame. That initially can also be salvation. Jesus captured my heart. We say it this way, I gave my life to Christ. I gave the steering wheel of my life to Christ. So he captivates us initially. He, but we also need to be captivated by him repeatedly so that we stay on track, are renewed, and are refreshed. And then eternally, you know what will make heaven heaven? We will be captivated by Christ forever and he's so magnificent he's so eternal he's from everlasting to everlasting we'll never get bored we'll continually be satisfied by our captivation to Christ amen right so that that's the beautiful thing and the beautiful capacity that we have and God's capacity to captivate us in a satisfying saving sanctifying way through his son in Christ now here's the question okay we live in a world of 24/7 news We live in the era of smartphones where you have a computer in your hand. You can Google search something immediately. And while you're Google searching, something can captivate you. And you forgot why you even went to Google, right? Your social media feed is pinging you. Text can ping. You're always available. 
So you, there is so much competing for your attention. And if you, now here's the, here's the bad part. If, if you get distracted by something, we all know that's a bad thing. That there's deceitful uh, things out there that can grab us, capture us, and dull our sense of the captivating capacity of God in Christ. So here's the question, okay? In a, in a world full of competing demands, in a world filled with distractions, some of them deceiving, some of them disappointing, some of them defeating, how does God help us stay captivated with Him or be repeatedly captivated by Him? How does it help us? How does He help renew us? How does He help redirect us? How does He help refocus us? Because we drift. We're like cars and tires on cars. Eventually, we work ourselves out of alignment. So how is God ordained to maintain, strengthen, or regain our captivation? Now, this is lost in our culture today. But from the Word of God, here's the answer. One of the primary ways God facilitates our captivation with Him is corporate worship, what we're doing right here. It's one of the primary ways that God grabs our captivation. And so listen, we cannot, listen, I want to say this to all the Christ followers. And if you're checking out Christianity, I just want to be clear on the front end. We cannot allow culture and rampant individualism, and you do you, and I'll do me, and you do works what, you, what works for you, and if church doesn't work for you, that's okay. We cannot let that influence us because it will take our eyes off the prize, and the prize is the God-man who hung on the cross instead of us. So we have to understand, when God ordains something, He does not mean for us to deviate from it. And so chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians is all about getting corporate worship right so we are captivated by God. We go into the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking about worship, but, in infant, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. So here's all he's saying. He goes, well, you don't really need to know. You don't have to experience evil to know that it's evil. Just be it like a child when your parents say, don't touch it, don't do it. Just don't touch it and don't do it. Okay? But when it comes to worship, corporate worship, he wants us to mature, understand the full vision, the full why behind the what of corporate worship. So here's what he does. He jumps back into speaking in tongues. We talked about it last week. He goes, it is written in the law, and he quotes from Isaiah 28, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me. So he's talking about tongue speaking, but he references a time in the history of Israel in Isaiah 28 when they had come under judgment to God. And, and they, weren't, they didn't think they would be judged by God for their devious ways. And one of the signs of God's judgment was the Assyrian army. They would hear the Assyrian language spoken in Jerusalem, which means your enemies are now in control of your capital. It would sort of like be if we, if we were still in World War II era days and we started walking down the streets of Atlanta or Nashville or Chattanooga or Washington, D.C., and we heard a lot of people speaking in German. We've been taken over. So he's using that analogy. I'll explain what he's getting at in just a second, okay? Speaking in tongues then, 
back to the Assyrian analogy, is intended as a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, those in rebellion against God, just like it was a sign to the Jews under the Assyrian assault that, hey, God is judging you. While prophecy, this would be speaking intelligible words of wisdom or insight or principles based upon what God has revealed in Scripture and in promptings of our spirit, is not for unbelievers but for believers. He goes then, if therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So if everybody's speaking in tongues or people are speaking in tongues, a foreign language or a language that the, the speaker doesn't understand innately, they're speaking supernaturally, Paul is saying, hey, look, if that's what's going on without interpretation, then unbelievers are going to come in and think you are crazy, Okay. So that's where he's going. Then he says, but if all are prophesying, understandable in communication about wisdom and insights from God, and some unbeliever outside comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. Do you see the potential of a corporate worship service? The potential for God to be so known, to be so understood that someone walks in the door with no understanding of God, hears intelligible communication driven by God, empowered by God, anointed by God, their heart is opened up and the, the God they did not believe in, had never submitted to, suddenly they come to that point in their life and they give Jesus Christ the steering wheel of their life because he has captured their attention. Okay? So, what's he saying? All right, he's referencing the Assyrian army threat to Jerusalem. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of missed opportunity. So the Jews, and if they were under siege, they hear the Assyrian tongue in their capital city. They're like, God has judged us, and we have missed the opportunity to get right with God. We've missed the opportunity to experience God, to repent, to obey, to surrender. We've been captured by other things, so we're captured now by a bad master, the Assyrians. Some of us could say, Matt, that's my story. I got captured by something. It grabbed my attention, and then it became my master, and it wasn't a good master. But God doesn't want that to happen. So he says, hey, listen, if all we're doing is speaking without tongues without interpretation, people could miss the message and miss that there is an opportunity for anyone, the way we say it at Rockbridge, people from all walks of life, to come to a, a, a knowledge of Jesus that captures the soul so the soul surrenders control, gives the steering wheel of, the li- of one's life to Jesus Christ. He drives, captivates us. What captures us, drives us, gets our direction. Direction determines destiny. So lo- look at the potential of a corporate worship service. Hey, unbelievers can come in and think you're crazy, or they can come in and be captivated by God. This speaks to the captivating capacity of God in Christ. This speaks to the purpose of a worship service. We said it this way. We aim at amen. 
last week, okay? So if we're going to get on this path and understand and participate in worship and understand worship this way, what are some things that Paul's going to bring out? So we're going to give some, some points and, and some principles. But what we need to understand today is, listen, let's not be childish anymore in our thinking of what God wants to happen once a week or so and in our small groups or so when we come together. Let's not lower the bar. Let's not dumb down the glory of God, the Word of God, the truth of God, the presence of God. Let's not make this a religious obligation. Let's not make this, I'll go to church if I want to. Let's make this what God has intended it for us, for intended for worship to be. We get to meet with God. Okay? So let's do, first thing we need to do, hear the invitation. Worship is a God-invited experience. And enter church with expectancy. Enter church with a sense of expectancy. So let's talk about our language. Think about the difference, right? Now, some of this is semantics, so bear with me, okay? This, some of this is semantics. But there's a big difference when saying, hey, come to church, let's go to church, or, hey, let's go meet with God, Okay? Big difference, right? Church, in, in, in the 21st century, church can be a place, a building. Church can be an hour of the week. Church can be a ritual. Church can be a duty. But church is designed by God. Corporate church, corporate worship is designed by God to be relational. It should be, let's go meet with God. So when we walk in the door, yes, last week we're aiming at amen. Let's complete that. We're aiming at amen because we're here to meet with God so that we can say amen, okay? And so now let's, let's understand something because this could be confusing. When we talk about the presence of God, we've got to understand God's presence in, in about four different kind of layers. The first layer is his omnipresence. God is everywhere. He's that eternal. He's that big. He's that amazing. He's everywhere, all places at all times. He's God, not me. I can't be omnipresent. God can. He's omnipresent. Then we can talk about his sustaining presence. God literally sustains creation. God sustained, God has ordained like atoms at the molecular level of how atoms work together and the neutron force and what, the, what keeps the proton and all that going together, all that nuclear stuff, right? God has ordained the earth to be positioned just the right distance from the sun at just the right tilt of the axis so we don't burn up or freeze up, right? He's a sustaining presence. Everybody, that's, everybody in the last three seconds has taken a breath. Who made that air? Who gave that air? But listen, we can still be unaware of God's omnipresence or his sustaining presence. Then we have what I'll call abiding presence. That's where Christ followers, by faith, know God's with them. That we read in God's word time and time again, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, which means God with us, and we're like, hey, God's with me. That's abiding presence. But what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 is not just omni, not just sustaining, not just abiding presence, but the special manifest presence of God where I am conscious that an invisible, holy, from everlasting to everlasting God is with me, is with us, is working, is moving, is speaking. I'm captivated by that. I'm amening about that. Okay, that, that's, that's the understanding. Think of it this way, the sun, okay? A lot of times we don't wake up and think, man, the sun, right? 
because the sun is sort of omnipresent. We don't really think that, man, without the sun, we couldn't survive. But we know because we learned that in like eighth grade science class or something, right? Or, or may, maybe our doctor's like, hey, you need some vitamin D. Go get out, get out in the sun, okay? And, but sometimes, you know, we're like, we'll say, hey, the sun will come up tomorrow. Or we're going to go to the beach tomorrow. Or we're going to go to the pool tomorrow, right? And, and we know the sun's going to be there if the weather says. That's kind of like by faith we know it's going to be there. But then there's sometimes we walk outside. Whoa, the sun. God wants us to walk in the door. Whoa, God is here. Okay, that, that's, that's, that's where we're aiming at. Now, let's see this in Scripture. Don't just take my word for it. Let's see it in Scripture. First Chronicles. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Now, we have to seek God, but set your heart and soul to it. There's an early Christian training manual that, that scholars have found. It dates about the turn of the century from 1st to 2nd century. It's called the Didache. All right, here, here's language from the Didache. Gather together frequently, seeking things pertaining to your souls. So when you gather together, you're seeking things pertaining to your soul. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while, may he, while he may be found. So here's a promise. When I seek the special manifest presence, oh, the Son, God is with us. God wants to be found. Now, Seeking is not us coming in this door passive. It's not us coming in this door saying, all right, let's see what Matt's got for me today. It's not us coming in this door saying, God, I hope, I hope the songs. It's us coming into this door saying, God has ordained this. I'm here to meet with God. And opening our hearts and opening our minds to seek the Lord because he wants to be he wants to be what? He wants to be found by us. Now, here's, some, here's the challenge, okay? Seeking the Lord go, uh, involves going through and going around. Now, I'm, I'm, let me unpack that, okay? First, going around. There's some obstacles that we have to get around. There are things that dull our spiritual reality. There are things that deaden us, and we have no sensitivity to God. On the extreme side, it's called a hard heart that's unresponsive. Okay? Some of us have been there. Some of us know people who are there. Right? There, there, there are things we have to go around. Our own distractedness, our own preoccupation. Some of you are one vibration away from some device in your pocket to losing consciousness of God. That's the danger, right? Do we recognize it? Do we recognize it? So we have to go around some things. We have to go around some obstacles. Matt's a leaky vessel. I don't stay captivated by God. I have to be recaptivated by God. Thus the instruction, don't give up the habit of meeting together in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, we also have to go through that there are ways that God manifests himself. If God just showed up right here in absolute unfilteredness, it would be like taking a piece of Kleenex and putting it on the sun. Boom! So he has to mediate himself or translate himself. It's one reason Jesus came looking like us with flesh, right? So God can be known. The heavens, nature can speak God. So we can go through nature to get something from God. We can go through the word of God. We can go through the people of God. And ultimately, we go through the blood of the son of God to get to God. So that's some just different understanding of the presence of God. Now Paul jumps back in. And he starts talking about what worship looks like. He says this, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, there's our phrase, there's corporate worship, 
Each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, but everything is to be done for building up. Now, we don't read this list as, as prescriptive. We read it, read it as descriptive. He's like, hey, when you come into worship, here's some things that are going to happen. Some people might be singing. There might be a teaching. Someone may reveal something. Someone may speak in tongues if there's an interpreter, but everything is to build up our faith, and faith is the means with which we grasp, we see, we are captivated by God. We walk by faith, not by sight. So our participation and our desperation are critical aspects of our worship gathering. First, we participate. We sing. We listen. We take notes. We say amen. We clap. We raise our hands. We are engaged. We are expectant. We are not passive. We are not, you know, sedentary. We are engaged. We are here to participate. Worship is not a spectator sport. We are not just fans. We are engaged followers. But secondly, desperation. We need to be built up. Why do we need to be built up? Because during the week, we get let down. We get deflated. We get dulled. We get disappointed. We get distracted. So we come in here to build up, and we come in here to build others up. So let's look at these a little bit individually, individually first. Participation on two fronts. First is posture guides the heart. Sometimes doing things physically and verbally helps move the heart. If I raise my hand, it could be a sign of giving glory to God. If I open my hand, it could be my, a sign of being receptive to God. If I feel the need to get on a knee and pray, it could symbolize uh, surrender to God or bowing down or humility before God. So posture, participation affects the heart. Singing, speaking, confessing, amening truth that can also help posture the heart to look in a certain direction. And if you look in this direction, you may be captivated by Christ. All right? Participation also means others around you need your amen. Others around here need hospitality. People need their ch children taken care of. We need to hear each other's voices. Amen. Singing. We need to see each other's faces. All of that fuels and helps in our captivation. You ever been walking somewhere and you see a crowd of people looking at something? What do you want to do? What are they looking at? Right? Sometimes I, I listen, I get paid to be here. I get paid to preach. It's God's word. It's, it's part of it. Right? There's times I come in here and I'm dry, and I watch some people, I watch some people, and I'm like, man, they're looking at Jesus, and then I start looking where you're looking or what you're singing, and I get captivated again, because I'm leaky. We need each other. Others need our amen. Now, on desperation, listen, here's what this is. Desperation is not just for God to meet our needs, because let's be careful, right? Sometimes our wants are disguised in our minds by, as needs. Desperation is God just meet us. God just meet us here. God ultimately satisfies all our needs. God, if, if we have God, we kind of have all we need, right? Now, now, we understand God wants to meet our needs. We understand God wants to comfort us. We understand God wants to guide us. But oftentimes when we get to this spot where we just say, God, all I want is you. That is when the Holy Spirit knows it is safe to manifest to that person or that church or that gathering. 
Because ultimately, we're not coming to God for his blessings. We're coming to God that he is the greatest blessing, right? Now, because worship, corporate worship is so important, we always protect what's important. We protect what's valuable, right? We put seatbelts on our kids. We put our money in banks. So what happens in the next, phrase, in the next, descript, in the next verses that Paul's going to talk about is regulation. Regulation is protection so that the integrity, the direction of the worship service stays aimed at God. And here's what Paul does to regulate. Here's what he says. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two or at the most three. So there's some flexibility here, but in turn, and let someone interpret. So he gives some guidance. Hey, we don't going to get crazy because people will think we're crazy if there's just a lot of tongue speaking going on. He goes, but if there's no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. This means that we have self-control over our spiritual gifts. It's not like suddenly we're taken under control and we have no control. We still have self-control, right? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So, you, so if you have fullness of the Spirit but you lose self-control, are you full of the Spirit? Thank you. Amen. Right? So two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. People are discerning. People are engaging. People are thinking. Because we can think. Thinking is a way to be captivated by God. So all of that's going on in the service. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you, for you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone can learn edification and everyone may be encouraged. Edification. But the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets. You have control over your gifts of prophecy. Since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So what is, what, how, what is Paul doing to regulate so services don't get out of control? A couple of things he's doing. First, he's saying we all practice, exhibit self-control. We don't want to do anything that takes attention off of the main attraction. And the main attraction is Christ crucified. The main attraction is the glory of God in Christ. Evaluation and discernment. We're thinking. We're engaging. We're understanding that Scripture ought to be the supreme authority. So if Matt, if I say something that confuses you or, or, or disorients you, there's a mechanism to evaluate that. There, whether a conversation after the service, an email, a conversation with our elders. All of those things, Paul is like, hey, we got to keep truth central because truth is ultimately of God from God. Throughout the church, so there's two forms of evaluation. All ch the church, we're supposed to evaluate. The Bereans in Acts 17 says they tested everything Paul said in accordance with Scripture. So they don't just take Paul's word for it. don't just take Matt's word for it. Matt has to stand on whoever's up here, campus pastors. Whoever's up here has to stand upon the word of God. And if we say something out of alignment with the word of God, we should be coached and corrected. Right? And the church recognizes that, but also there's special positions in the church, elders, who oversee the doctrine, the beliefs, the teaching ministry of the church. So the church stays guarded from falsehood, guided by the glory of God in Christ, standing on the foundation of the scriptures. Okay? Now, and then lastly, worship of God should reflect the nature of God. Okay, so if we're, if, if we're, if, let me say how, let me sh share how I wrote this down. Worship that contradicts the nature of God will be missing the presence of God. Worship that contradicts the nature of God, God's the God of order and of peace, 
we'll be missing the presence of God. We'll miss the mark. So Paul regulates that. Now, here we go. He's going to start talking about women, okay? Women speaking in church. Hold on, okay? As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches. And most of us are like, man, Paul's never been married, has he, right? (laughs) But he's, he's addressing something. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. What do we do with that? What do we do with that, right? Okay, so let's take a deep breath, ladies. Guys, stop secretly clapping. Do whatever you're doing, right? Let's let's submit our emotions to the Word of God, and let's get underneath it. Remember, Paul is trying to protect the purpose, the integrity of the service. Here's what he does. So here's here's what we need to realize. First of all, Paul's not contradicting himself. So women pray and prophesy. He says that clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So when he says women should be silent in church, he's not meaning absolutely silent. There's, in fact, I would go a step further, and I would use 1 Corinthians 11, 12. I use Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4 to illustrate this. Women and men, we can all have the same spiritual gifts. Okay? There's not a group of spiritual gifts that only men have. There's not a group of spiritual gifts that only women have. We're all the body of Christ. Okay, so he's not, he, Paul has not gotten schizophrenic. He's not being hypocritical. What's going on? Okay, a couple of things potentially, possibly. There could be a specific cultural issue at play. So in the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, women really didn't get taught the law. Women couldn't ask questions. They couldn't be students of, of God's word. So now that Christ has come, women are given a place in the worship service. Women are given a place to learn. So there's a, some people who believe women would, at this era in first century, women would have been less educated, less literate than men. And so they're hearing things for the first time. They're getting captivated, but they've got questions. And so they're popping those questions off in the church service, right? Kind of just, hey, what about, what about, what about? And Paul's like, hey, we've lost order. And, and, and we're getting a little bit distracted. So Paul wants to rein that in. That's a working theory that some people have. It can hold some water if we get into the cultural context of first century uh, Greek culture, first century Greek culture, uh, uh, context. He's also still been talking the whole time about self-control and the nature of God, that we all shouldn't be talking all the time. And then, you know, inside of God's nature, there's order. Inside of the nature of God, there's submission, right? The God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit are all equal in their essence, but in functions, they're subordinate. The Son is subordinate to the Father. The Spirit's subordinate to the Son in how they function. So it could be reflecting the nature of God and the spiritual leadership, and we've defined spiritual leadership or male spiritual leadership as men go first in taking the initiative to lead spiritually, and men go first in making a loving sacrifice. That's, that's, spirit, that's male spiritual leadership, okay, in, in a nutshell. So we've defined that before in our church. So those issues are in Paul's mind. And then this is probably where the interpretation is closest. If the public doctrine of the church is being delivered and and discerned or evaluated, we read that word earlier, who in the church is most in a position and has met certain qualifications to do that? The elders. So Paul could be saying, hey, listen, not everyone 
has ultimate or authority to speak for the doctrine of the church. The elders guard that. So we should never usurp or get close to usurping spiritual authority. Now that's countercultural because we live in an age where I'm my own authority. That's not the way God works. He's created nature with order and authority. He's created families with order and authority. He's created the church with order and authority. He himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, exists in a trinity of order and authority. So his worship service, where we meet him, God is here, is going to be marked by order and authority. So all of that it might give us some understanding of what Paul is talking about. And he starts to close, and then he goes, and he's going he's gonna to broaden the topic now. So he's not just picking on women, okay? He's not just picking on women who had never had a chance to ever ask a question about God before. He's, he's not just saying, be quiet or don't enter. You know, he, he's not just doing that. He starts talking to anybody who's got a problem. So he broadens it. He says, I'm going to talk about everybody. He says, look, did the Word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? So some of you in the Corinthian church are acting like you're the ultimate authority. And if you've got an urge to speak and you've got an urge to say something, you're just claiming a mantle. But you've got to remember something. God's word came to you. It didn't begin with you. And he goes on, he says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Here's, what, here's Paul pulling rank. Paul is saying, I have apostolic authority. I'm an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. I am writing with biblical black and white authority. This is, why, this is what the church stands upon. Nobody ever, if, if our, our ultimate question at Rockbridge is, what does this thing, what does this say? This is our authority. This is our sufficiency. So we can never let our behavior or anything else trump what's in the word of God. Why do so many churches get in trouble? Why do so many marriages get in trouble? Why do so many Christians get in trouble? Because we treat this as optional, not as authoritative. So Paul's like, don't stand up and speak if you are not going to submit to the revealed, written Word of God. Warning. Anyone who ignores this, he's going to be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. So we recognize God's role and God's position. God first sought us. The word of God, he says to Corinth, came first to you. God sought you out before you were seeking him out. If God didn't seek us out, we would all be eternally damned. But he went first. God's still seeking people out. There's people, I'm speaking right now. I'm going out digitally and to six physical locations. There's some of you God is trying to get your attention. He's trying to recapture your attention so he can arrest your current direction. There's some of you God wants to alter your eternal destiny, and he's trying to show you his power, his glory through the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Will we right now, as we prepare to close, give him our attention? That's, his, that's understanding God's role. And then his position 
there must be no competition for our captivation. So he warns, he warns some probably some women who were prone to talk too much when they should have listened a little bit more. He warns some people, men and women, with the gift of prophecy, hey, don't get out of line. Stay under the authority. Don't let your speaking or your selfish ambition become competition for the captivation of Christ. He warns people who speak in tongues. He says, hey, don't get out of line. Don't let tongue speaking be what people remember the service by. Let God was here be what marks the service. So here's what I want to do. We're going to close this way. I just want you to you be, you be free right now, all campuses. You assume whatever position you want to assume. You can kneel, you can pray, you can close your eyes. I'm going to read a verse of Scripture over us, and we're just going to give God our attention, okay? If you want to open your hands in a posture like this of receptivity, that is fine. If you want to raise your hand in a posture of exaltation or, 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 or of surrender or of openness, you do, you do whatever gives you freedom, but let the posture of your body direct What's capturing your mind and your heart, which is the glory of God, the love of God, the majesty of God in Jesus Christ. And I will read the authoritative word of God over all of us. And God, as I read, may your spirit work. As I read, may our attentions and distractions be arrested redirected to be captured by you. I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. As for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. God, may you be honored and glorified by the attention we are giving you right now. God, may we confess in our spirit, Jesus plus nothing, always and forever, will equal everything. God, may you forgive us for being preoccupied with sin or with self, with society. God, will you forgive us for moving away from you? Renew us, refresh us right now with your presence. So, God, by the time we finish singing, we may say, Amen. The Lord met with me this day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.